0: Philip going on stage with two drinks in him, it's him going on stage sober. <laughs> Pretty much the same for me. We've done plays together, and it's like, you know, you really should be sober for this. That's, okay, I'll, I'll have two beers. I'll, have two I'll drink beer instead of whiskey. <laughs> right, right. Come um, gather all your poets, all your storytelling freaks
1: Thrumming your golden esophagus, spilling floral
0: frilly speech You are the chosen noisemakers, the rabble that won't sleep
1: The ugly little secrets walking proudly down the street Each story holds a thousand
0: seats A proverbial pomegranate, a jewel of possibilities, a not so silent planet. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Not So Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. I'm your host, Philip Lowe, with me as always is my co-host, Ben Sandel. Isn't it a little presumptuous to say welcome back? What if this is their first time? It's, it's, this is then their, I have no idea what to predict (laughs) for the experience they're about to have if this is their...
2: Their first time. But <laughs> time is cyclical, though. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. What if both their first and their eternal? <laughs> That's right. Time, That's right. And, uh, and there might be the
0: gasp. Somebody who's a friend of one of the guests who listen because they're a friend of one of the guests and they've never heard it I think it's implausible that any of our guests would have friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Agreed. Well, <laughs> speaking of guests... Oh, yeah, our, our guests... Oh, right, right. Our guest for tonight's show, our uh, regular at our open mic, Jeff Henry. Hi. And uh, also joining us in uh, uh, other... This is your third time on here? Yeah, Loving. I think yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. Tim Wick. Also, hi. Hey, hello. Hey, <laughs> yo. Greetings, <laughs> and we will we will dive right into our aural report. The book that Jeff recommended, we take a look at was "The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch" by Philip K. Dick. I am going to be that working. That is the most
1: Philip K. Dick
0: title to a story ever. Do <laughs> yep. you yep. think that's more Philip K. Dicky than "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sleep? Sheep. Electric sheep, <laughs> sheep, <laughs> sheep. Yes. Oh man. <laughs> It's not I mean, a pie it's not, not a so path silent podcast it. without <laughs> no. me screwing up a least, word
1: in the first two minutes. This is at least as Philip K. Dickey as do Androids dream of electricity.
0: Dickish. Dickyish. Much, much more ominous on I I I think we're all just gonna have to make our peace with the fact that dick jokes are going to be a part of the next ten minutes of all. Our lives. If you like
2: if you like okay dick, you're a dickhead,
0: etc. But yeah, uh, Three sigma. so uh, with just a brief plot summary out of the way, because as with many Philip K. Dick novels, the plot is really the least interesting thing that's going on. Uh, plot-wise, this is basically like a corporate espionage story. It's This is a dystopian future where life on Earth is becoming... Y- y- less and less
2: viable he certainly so there- predicted
0: that global warming thing yeah
2: <laughs> well, <that> was, <laughs> like intense Antarctica's beachfront property <laughs> you, know, <laughs> like, you can't be outside in the middle of the day or you'll die <laughs> I,
1: I, I don't I'm stunned a little bit to discover that Philip K. Dick would write a story that involves some kind of dystopian theater. <laughs> Shocking. It seems so odd. Oh, this but, it?
0: it was 64 when he wrote it? Uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, I should have come, come in. Prepared, it yep, 64. And it is like a global warming. People can't... Yeah, it was... Well, I don't think he figured it out all by himself. I think there were probably other people. No, but it just so, makes, you, it makes you realize how shitty we've been as a, as a race of people, as a species, uh, that we clearly knew about this that early on, and we still are debating it at this point.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, in the, in the story, I must point out, global warming is not caused by humans. It's caused by the proxies. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So double conspiracy theory. So theories. maybe not, we should <laughs> not a hoax of the Chinese, according to some people. It is a hoax of the proxies. Are so, those lizard people? Uh, doesn't really say what. Okay, they are. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna just assume kind of to they're their
1: their lizard reference. people because that works in that conspiracy theory. Mm. Global warming doesn't kill
0: people. proxiums <laughs> causing global warming kills people. Kills people. people. Right. So so yes, people. There's a, a sort of draft slash lottery that goes on where people are. Uh, into a, f- a sort of forced colonization deal where they're sent off world and have to live under just horrible conditions in hopes of populating, creating human populations on other planets. Uh, and their lives are so horrible that they deal with it the only way you can, which is drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and there are these corporations that sell. Uh, the drugs themselves are illegal, but these corporations sell what are essentially props. Ex- accessories. To yeah. The drugs. Uh, for people to use while they take the drugs and they allow them to enter these sort of collective fantasy worlds. And I, I was it. reading this, I was like, the only way he thought of this idea was <laughs> on drugs. There's no way. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, don't think, think Shopping, again. That the idea that you have to take a drug and you have to have this, like, dollhouse <laughs> set up in front of you and then you kind of inhabit the dollhouse is such a weird idea. I was reading it. And I was right? like, what the fuck is happening? This is the first <laughs> Philip K. Dick I've ever read. Oh yeah, No. Way. and that was that was like okay, all right. This is some he has some sta- ideas. But Hell the
1: statement it, "What the fuck is happening?" is a very <laughs> common thing that comes from reading a Philip K. Dick book. So, <laughs>
0: right. And yeah, so, so it's uh, uh, uh so they make their money from selling the accessories, but of course they're making their real money from illegally dealing the drugs under the table. When suddenly Palmer Eldritch. Comes back with an alien super drug. <laughs> and it is very ambiguous exactly what this drug does. Uh, to what degree these are just hallucinations, or you are entering the consciousness of Palmer Eldritch, or you are actually time traveling. Or whether or not Palmer <laughs> Eldritch is even alive anymore, or yeah. this is an imposter mm-hmm. of him. And then, once characters start taking the drug, there's ambiguity over whether they actually wake up or whether they're just experiencing hallucinations within it. It gets very inception y. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Several so layers of reality and unreality making you constantly question yeah, yeah. what is real.
2: And that's, of course, a recurring theme in his work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the, the book
0: <laughs> is pretty creepy by the end. That I would say that last third of the book is just a hell of a ride in terms of. Just concept after concept, and this real uncertainty. And I will say, uh, the two thirds to get there can often be a slog. I found. I don't know if anyone else uh, feels that way. It's (laughs) a little bit of a slog, but
1: it's a very quick slog. I would like to state for the record, I did not read the book. (laughs)
0: Um, It it, is very well. It's interesting. Philip K. Dick has a very, I I would say, I would say. pared-down way of writing. Like, there's not a lot of description. There's Mm -hmm. not a lot of... uh, There's not even a lot of inflection in the characters. The characters just sort of... They talk to each other. They apparently get angry and upset, but they never really show it. It's it's kind of... everything. Everybody's kind of flat. It reminds me of... um, Blade um, Runner? (laughs) (laughs) No, You (laughs) you know what? I'm going to jump on that right there because I, I wanted to get to Blade Runner because uh because i i i have this feeling like so uh i i've been reading a couple of philip k dick books and there's one quote they keep using where they uh it's someone comparing him to kafka and then i read it and i was like this makes total sense to me in that uh they're similar in that they have all of these adaptations and people have a conception of them as these very darkly serious intense writers and then you actually read their stuff and a lot of it's very funny yes and
2: like, yes it's you know. satire and yeah, yeah. satire like, as much as anything else and he's oh. got
0: a hell of an ear for dialogue for uh, yes. for whatever i i think his prose is kind of clunky but in terms of the it's the characters are very witty and it's you know. and it's amazing <laughs>
2: how much he packs into such a short period of time yeah. Like within 10 pages of this book you find mm-hmm. out the main character is divorced what yeah. his job is he's a precog You know, you find out that Earth is almost uninhabitable now. It's amazing how many concepts he packs in such... Like, this book references, you know, like, reality, unreality, the inability to tell, you know, dreams from wakefulness, um, you know, the whole uh, post-apocalyptic future bit, and um, religious themes as well, like the stigmata, and, you know, how humans interact with God in search of a higher purpose. Like, I don't know if you remember... The uh, the character at the end, who's near the end, who's um, a missionary,
0: uh, Anne Hawthorne.
2: Um, (laughs) She's kind of interesting because she's going there to try and bring the colonists to the Christian God, but then she ends up getting brought to drugs instead. (laughs) She ends up being converted to drugs and sex rather than (laughs) converting them to. So it's kind of a. You know, it's kind of a commentary on how humans deal with the unknown and what causes us to seek religious experiences and how one person's religious experience is another person's drug trip and vice versa.
0: See, and I'd say that's the defining thing about Philip K. Dick for me is the, he never writes a novel of one idea. It's always like, it's a half dozen concepts rattling around, slamming into each other. And that's what's so like breathtaking about one. And so cuz I started I started with a bunch of his short stories cuz I was trying to sort of work up to it and they're I found them they're okay. They're kind of formulaic if <laughs> they tend to be. He has one cool idea, spends a couple of pages setting it up and knocks it's the it's the pretty typical sci-fi formula, <laughs> right? But then in the novels it is the fact that it's taking so many different weird ideas like the fact that there's precogs in the story and it's kind of just a casually accepted well, feature of the, this universe. That's that, <laughs> yeah, that, you have you, you, these like high concept things casually accepted, like precogs. But then also one of the things is that they like one of the, the characters is making pottery, mm, and yeah, th- yeah. that's like a, the ceramics angle of it, where she's it, like, "Oh, I hope they accept my ceramics." And you learn as the book goes on, "Oh, this is." She's making ceramics to be accepted to be part of these little dollhouses that people <laughs> use to with their drugs.
2: The layout. And, yeah.
0: But he doesn't explain anything to you as it's going. Yeah. So you have all these weird concepts. Like she's making ceramics. He's a precog. You have this this dollhouse drug situation, and and the, there's the whole global warming thing. And nothing is explained. There's no exposition. Right. It's just you just are expected to pick it up as you're going along and eventually yeah. do but it really does make those first uh, like 30 pages Oh, and there's that whole thing about so, like yeah. the the evolutionary drugs too, yes, the, where uh, like oh. causing people
2: to evolve, and then sometimes or it devolve <laughs> devolves evolves or... them instead. Which again, just sort of casually thrown out. Uh, yeah. A, like... But you know, it's funny the the thing about the layouts. I like, when I first read it, I was like, man, this is weird as hell. You know, like they have these <laughs> doll houses and they put their minds into the dolls, and I it's uh... like all the guys go into uh, you know. Um, <laughs> The one guy who's basically a Ken doll, and then all the <laughs> ladies go into Perky Pat, and it's like they all merge their minds together. <laughs> but, you, know, you feel that,
0: that there's a that moment where everybody's talking over each other in the same head. Yes.
2: <laughs> but there's I I think that it all boils down to what the the basis of the book is, and it's I think it's all symbolic for the fact that the book is ultimately about how humans try to accept, you know... human condition you know we're in in a sense we're all colonists we're all faced with you know problems in our lives and i think the the layouts thing and the perky pat um situation kind of represents people turning to material goods like the (laughs) the whole thing with layouts is very materialist you know you want to get new things for your your dollhouse basically and your your individuality is taken away when you take the drug it's just all you care about is your dollhouse the things that you put in it and so the so that's candy, that's the first drug. And then Paul Meraldich brings back choosy, which I think is more about introspection. So it's yeah, yeah. a choice between you know living in this this um, materialistic world where your individuality is stripped away or you can choose to be introspective and turn turn your attention inward and you know try and figure out you know your life and who you are and what you live for. And the thing about it that I think makes this book so um, bleak and pessimistic <laughs> is that neither is better. Like the yeah. people who you know try to confront the truths about themselves and learn about themselves and take choosy and just end up in this you know like nightmarish funhouse of horrors where they never they never <laughs> escape from it. They never find out who they are. Yeah. They never even know if you know they're really there or not. Right by the end. Yeah. So,
0: well, oh, so, you put way more thought into this than I did.
2: I've had some time to think about it because I've read this book a while ago, and I've you know picked it up from time to time and flipped through it. But, and uh, you know, it's all right there in the in the last couple pages. They mentioned that the three Stigmata, which are you know Palmer Eldritch keeps throwing showing back up throughout their hallucinations, and it's always you know he has these slotted eyes, he has a mechanical arm, and um, metallic teeth. That's the other mm-hmm, one. Those yeah. are the three Stigmata. And the last, one of the last pages, he mentions that they are blurred reality alienation and despair
0: yeah <laughs> and those
2: constantly confront the people who take choosy is blurred reality alienation and despair so when they choose to look in themselves and try and yeah. you know figure out the purpose of their life they're only confronted with you know these three horrors over yeah. and over again
0: and I, I think it's telling too that like candy is this sort of corporate product and choosy right. was brought to them by this crazy space cowboy from beyond the stars yeah <laughs> um, Tim. You based on what we've all said, do you think you'd be able to convince somebody that you've read this book? <laughs> all right,
1: well, I mean, I've read other books by uh, Philip K. Dick, so I believe yes. No, I, I mean, I think uh, based on this, I could probably carry on an intelligent conversation <laughs> on this book without having read it. Yes.
0: Could Could you, like... you adopt an unnecessarily hostile opposing position? Just someone who had read the book, if if you felt essentially we're giving you an improv <laughs> exercise
1: right <laughs> now. I think I might need a Wikipedia article <laughs> to pick up a few character names, but other than that, yes, I think
0: I could. You know, I, I just read this, and I don't know if I could tell you <laughs> any character name other than Palmer Aldrich. <laughs> um, Palmer Aldrich. <laughs> there's Bar- Barney? Yep. Oh, Barney. Yeah. Oh yeah. There Barney you go. Barney right. Well,
1: there's a missionary. What's her name? Uh, Anne. There you go. Yep.
0: Oh yeah, and every ca- and every woman character, aside from one, aside from one woman character who is described as a lesbian, and another one who's, who's a drug dealer who's really grumpy. Every other woman character is described pretty much as like a supermodel, <laughs> and I'm like, all right, that was the one thing that I found distracting in the book yeah. is like, is real, honestly, is every <laughs> if every single goddamn woman is f- fucking. Cover girl. <laughs> That's the one thing that
2: frustrates me about about Dick's stuff as well. Unfortunately, is he yeah. doesn't have the best attitude towards <laughs> towards women. Um, it's I mean, they, all too common, but it's unfortunate. You know. They're
0: not they're not necessarily weak characters. Yeah, not yeah. in this book at least. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but they are all supermodels. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's always yeah. I I was just paying really close attention, and I was like, okay, oh, finally, there. He's describing somebody who's not attractive. Oh, she's a lesbian. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> right. She's not an object for the male game. Yeah. This particular one. So I've used this phrase about a couple of writers we've talked about on the podcast, but I think it also applies to Philip K. Dick. Is the he's he's someone who manages to be a great writer, while often not being a very good writer. <laughs> like, I felt like I feel the same way about George Lucas. (laughs) uh, Should we argue then perhaps that he's a great
1: storyteller who's not necessarily a great writer?
0: I wouldn't even say story because I think he's a great concept guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know that his... I think like his narratives tend to
2: be sort of He's blotting a, and he's clunky. A, I know I know what you mean, and I agree with the exception of a scanner darkly. I think a scanner yeah. darkly is masterfully told, and that's his high the high point of his career. Right? So yeah, yeah. let it's, me ask,
0: why did you pick this book instead of Scanner Darkly? That's yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> Ultimately,
2: I think I really love Scanner Darkly and yeah. I think it's masterfully done. But as far as the concepts, I think there's more to talk about with this book. Just yeah, yeah. there's more concept shoves in there. There's yep. a lot more yes. symbolism in some ways. So that's why I chose <laughs> this one. And I just you know, I this is the most recent one so
0: when did you first discover philip k dick and how much influence has it had on you as a as a writer
2: oh as a writer he's had more influence on me than any any other writer i would say um he's my favorite my favorite author probably with the possible exception of george orwell but um i discovered him probably back in middle school because my dad was a huge philip k dick fan as well Mm -hmm. had all of his had all of his books and so kind of passed them on to me and you know recommended do androids dream of electric sheep and that sort of thing so i kind of grew up with him
0: can I can I ask how you feel about Blade Runner? Yes, the
2: uh... the new adaptation that came. Well, out I was or gonna or say I was gonna say the classic. The...
0: I like it. Yeah, I think it's uh-huh. a,
2: I think it's a really good adaptation as far as as far as that goes. There are some differences. I was I couldn't fit everything in. But...
0: I when I was reading this book, I was sort of relieved to because re- every adaptation of his is so bleak. And if you just look at the plot and what happens to the characters, it's a very they're very bleak, but it doesn't feel bleak. Yeah. Because he because it's like we were talking about earlier. He writes in a very kind of satirical. So sort I'm of I i do not want to say silly, but it's bordering bordering on silliness. Yes. Almost. Oh yeah yeah. And <laughs> you don't get that at all in the adaptation. And it, you really need that. I'm not a big fan of his. I'm not even a big fan of Blade Runner. I yeah. feel like it's way too bleak and just sort of drab and it just. But if it had that that little bit of satirical just ridiculousness that his prose, yeah, yeah whimsy. And the whimsy it would it would elevate it to a new level. So yeah, I I, I reread Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep and I rewatched Blade Runner recently. And the and uh I mean I'll 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 confess to yet another geek sin on this podcast and say I am not a huge Blade Runner fan you're, I just, think it's just, rah, you know. you're just copying what i said get the
2: pitchforks
0: <laughs> i think i'm more hostile to it than you are i think because I, I i remember i saw it years ago and i didn't really care for it and i thought well i'll give it a try again because maybe i was just going in with a chip on my shoulder and i watched it again and i was like i think i hate
2: this <laughs> <laughs> i don't just dislike it i actually hate it i'll tell you what makes the movie for me though is uh roy batty's monologue at the end that yeah. i think that is a standout scene. Otherwise, yeah, it's um, fairly, you know. Run I've seen,
0: I've seen things you people have never, could never imagine. And it's all like tears and rain, blah, yeah. blah blah, whatever it was. Just, <laughs> was my the, just so you folks at home know, <laughs> that was Ben Sandel doing an impression. That was not an audio clip <laughs> of the actual I monologue. Know, I know how close it was <laughs> and how confusing that
2: was. Wouldn't that be
0: funny if that was the actual audio? Yeah, people thought that it was such a great monologue. I'm copyright infringement. <laughs> I'm going to create a fan edit <laughs> that just dubs you into. <laughs> <laughs> So I was going to say earlier, um, have any of you seen the movie The Lobster or The killing, a Sac- a killing of a Sacred Deer? No. Nope. Oh, I don't think so. Well, then never mind. That conversation won't go anywhere. But either of those but movies... I enjoy just... lobster. Same. Um, Jeff, well, Jeff, maybe... You... I
1: don't kill deer as much, but...
0: <laughs> I'm all for killing deer, though. They are peas oh, in ass. And I hate them. Uh, but his... Uh, Philip K. Dick's dialogue and sort of just kind of weirdness reminds me a lot of if you if you ever look um, look up the Lobster, okay, uh, and the killing of a sacred deer. It's I feel like those movies more than anything else capture his tone much more than movies that were actually adapted from his work. Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah, well,
0: but yeah, I might be true. crazy.
2: I don't know. It's yeah. It's interesting how you know someone's style can speak to you more than. You know more than almost anything else about it, like you know, yeah, you, 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 you <laughs> watch something and you're like this plot isn't the same at all, but the style reminds me of it, so yeah. You know? yeah, yeah.
0: And it's a shame that they couldn't capture the style when they're actually adapting his work. Yeah. The
2: one that I would say really <clears throat> does is Scanner Darkly, the, the movie version mm-hmm. of it. If you've ever seen that, that yeah. keeps kind of the wittiness, that's and the, yeah, that's the one that I would say really does a good job. And
0: that's that. a kit where the sort of like weirdly rotoscoped Grand Theft Auto style yeah. automa- <laughs> animation, like works for it in that it's just sort of weirdly uncanny valley enough but it's supposed to be it's supposed to be sort of (laughs) off-putting
2: right and if if it's the whole you know another theme of that book as well as not being able to see reality for what it is so the um, fact that you know you're viewing the characters through this lens of rotoscoping and everything just kind of sets the mood
0: yeah yeah he's he's an author where like the more i talk about him the more i like him (laughs) like when i I read the book and I think one thing, and then I'm sitting down and trying to pick it apart, and I'm like, "Yeah, there there was a lot going on
2: There's there." A lot going on. It is, you know, you sit down and you read one of his books, and then it's just like, "Wow, I got to digest that for a while." Like, <laughs> that's how I feel about it, at least.
0: Well, That seems like a good place for us to pause. Why did you need to say that I like Blade Runner? Screw so all you. Yeah. Screw all of, yeah. Yeah. Screw yeah. All of us. Yeah. Blade Runner to musical March twenty eight No. I've got a
1: better idea. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs>
0: Jeez, Jeez, the <laughs> and we will be right back. You are listening to the Not So Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Those ratings are how we remind the rest of the electronic world that we exist, which, in my experience, is often better than the alternative. And now, back to the podcast. Welcome back to the Not-So-Silent Planet. A speculative podcast. You don't even know if it's real or not. You don't know if it's real or not.
1: I'll speculate your podcast. Whoa. He's a (laughs)
0: PG-13. Or R, at least. Still so, recorded one year before it's actually going to be posted. That's
1: right. Oh, that's optimistic.
0: <laughs> oh, Roy Moore is going to be such old news. You oh my this. god, dude. Oh my <laughs> god. Probably going to be in office. <laughs> well, we could probably check the internet we, right now. We all agree with that uh, our feelings about President Roy Moore should have no <laughs> bearing <laughs> oh, <on. Christ>. oh, <laughs> Might as well be. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's going so... to push out President... Uh, are you What's trying to remember the alternate yes. timeline? Yes. What is your what is her name? The Green Party candidate. Jill Stein. Jill Stein. <laughs> oh god. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Good. Sorry. That was that was that was worth that was the time worth to get Everybody's time. Nobody's <laughs> gonna, nobody will be able to get that minute back from their life. <laughs> so, minute. That's generous. <laughs> so, uh, our special guest for the evening, Master Jeff Henry, will be. Uh, Presenting some original material of his own. Is there, is there a title to this? Uh, uh,
2: right now, I'm calling it The Phoenix Project.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, The Phoenix Project.
2: Ooh. <clears throat> Eyes open. <laughs> dazed. Above me, a face begins to come into focus, covered with a surgical mask and silhouetted against the bright light. Soon the fog lifts from my vision, and behind him I'm able to make out another masked figure standing at a small computer terminal. Hello, Lieutenant Hughes, are you awake now? Still with us? I open my mouth, desperate to assure him that somehow, yes, I am alive, to tell him not to bury me or do an autopsy or whatever he was planning on. But my mouth only twitches. Summoning what feels like a Herculean strength, I try again and this time manage to eke out a whisper. Yes. Good, that's good. We have unfortunately lost several to the shock of the extraction process. If only the simulation wasn't so necessary. You know what they say about wishing in one hand, though, right? Now hold very still. My head explodes into pain, and bright spots of light appear in my vision, obscuring and distorting the man's masked face. I try to open my mouth and scream, but all my strength seems to have been used up, answering his question. I want to thrash and writhe away from the crushing agony, but I'm completely paralyzed and can do nothing more than stare up stupidly like a deer in the headlights. A scene flashes before my eyes, fuzzy and vaguely remembered, through a haze of terror and confusion. I'm alone in a bed, in a dark hospital room, empty chairs arranged in a semicircle next to me now, empty of, vis- empty of visitors. I'm laying there with my organs failing from some damned complication of pneumonia, of all things, and the realization creeps over me that I'm on my deathbed, that this is how these things happen. How strange. Only earlier this month I was strolling through my favorite park, maybe not walking as quickly or comfortably as I once did, but certainly not hobbling, annoyed by a persistent but mild cough, which had no greater effect than the occasional interruption of my thoughts. I hadn't expected to wind up here eating lackluster hospital food day after day as a barrage of doctors and nurses presented me, first with confident assurances, then with guarded optimism, and finally with gentle suggestions that I get my affairs in order. Now my lungs have begun to shake and rattle, each new breath a desperate struggle, but I won't give up. I can't. The sheer instinct of self-preservation overpowers any free will I may once have had, compelling me to keep up the futile battle for a life now used up and worn out. No matter how much it hurts, I have no choice but to keep exhaling and inhaling, exhaling and inhaling. My gaze wanders to the table next to my bed, where a beautiful bouquet of colorful flowers sits next to a balloon and a card reading, Get Well Soon, bearing no less than a dozen signatures. My daughter brought them in this very afternoon. They really expect me to make it out of this. Who are they trying to fool? My breath grows more shallow still, and it takes all the effort I can muster to even draw in half a wheezing lungful. The finality begins to dawn on me, the truth of what I denied for the last two weeks throughout the rotation of friends, family, doctors. My road is at an end, and even though there are still dates on my calendar and clothes in my closet back home, the times come to face the darkness. Another trembling gasp. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm glad that my daughter isn't here to see me in this broken, fragile state. She's always told me how much strength she gets from me. When John died, when she lost her job, when the depression came knocking, I was always the one she called. Telling her to hold on and think of the good times helped me to hold on myself. I noted that if she heard me wheezing and sputtering, it would break her heart. I can feel those breaths now, as if I'm still taking them. Lieutenant, the voice speaks from the great beyond. Lieutenant Hughes, oh good, you're still there. I thought we might have lost you for a moment. This is the most dangerous part of the extraction process. The nanobots are making some adjustment adjustments to your amygdala. You have to stay conscious so we can ensure everything is working correctly. His words trail off off as if someone's turned the volume down, and I'm floating away, back into darkness, returning to that hospital room where gradually my eyes are beginning to feel heavier and heavier. Soon I'm struggling desperately to keep them open at all, like one of the last kids awake at a slumber party. I want to call out to a passerby, to a nurse, to have anybody here by my side, but my muscles refuse to obey at all, and the dread builds to a crescendo as I think. it's happening. And then suddenly the dread subsides like waves from a shore at low tide, and peace settles over me in its place, deeper than anything I've ever known. I've had seventy good years, I realize. I can't ask for any more. Hell, I shouldn't ask for any more. Every one of those days was a gift, because somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that was time I would never get back. If I had any energy left at all, I might laugh. Is this what I've been afraid of my entire life? I wonder. My vision dims and a final thought shoots through the darkness, like a spark from a shorted circuit. Everything considered, life's been good to you. Don't get greedy. Stay with me, Hughes. An excruciating surge of hot energy runs through my heart and I snap back to the present, greeted by a chorus of rapid, <laughs> high-beeping noises from my from nearby monitors. He's stabilizing, says someone outside the field of my limited vision. Glad you made it, Lieutenant. Where am I? How long have I been out? The man pulls his mask down and laughs. Some residual memory loss, I see. Like I told you when you came in, the simulation only takes 90 seconds to complete and the follow-up adjustment less than a minute. Now I'll have you report to Sector 7 for your debriefing. A soldier appears next to me from outside my peripheral. Hoisted up suddenly by my arms, I'm guided up and pushed to gently but firmly away from the spotlight overhead, away from the table, away from the masked men, and into a long, brightly illuminated tunnel. Pipes run along concrete walls and footsteps echo on the metal grates that serve as floors. As I'm ushered forward in daze, Thoughts start to wind their way up to me from the depths of my scrambled psyche. Sector 7? Lieutenant? Finally, I think to look down and see that I'm wearing combat boots and fatigues. What is going on here? Suddenly, I'm pushed forward into a long, thin room, joining a single-file line of other shuffling half-zombies and camouflage jackets. Next to us stands a smaller line of stern-faced guards. Set into the wall across from us is a large screen, from which the face of a woman regards us imperiously. On the lapel of her blue jacket, just above where the screen cuts off, a series of shining metals are visible. Her iron-colored hair frames a shapely face with proud, hard eyes. No sooner has the line stopped moving than the doors slide smoothly shut behind us. Attention, shol- attention soldiers, shouts one of the guards in the center of the room. Admiral Sharp will now begin the debriefing. At the word attention, my body snaps automatically into an erect posture, my hand shooting up to my forehead. The room relaxes as Admiral Sharp's cool voice cuts through the room her voice carrying the kind of casual authority that would command attention whether she was a president or a janitor. I'm sure that all of you are quite confused. That's normal. It will take at least half an hour after the readjustment for your memories to fully return. However, our extensive research has shown repeatedly that the best results are achieved by addressing you immediately following extraction from the experience, while you still vividly remember your deaths. She pauses a moment. Death is, after all, what this is about, she continues. Death? and a choice between the death of some of humanity or the death of all of humanity, between the deaths of all of you and the deaths of all of your families back home. It's a hard concept to understand. I know as well as you do. It has been millennia since our species has had to face mortality. The last of us to die naturally perished more than 2000 years before the destruction of Europa Station. Each of us has seen centuries of history pass before our eyes. The colonization of new planets, contact with new species, and, she says softly, the coming of a pheroxy. And without making the ultimate fa- sacrifice, a pheroxy vessel is the last thing any of us will ever see. As she speaks, a fragment of memory surfaces. Stylus in hand, I'm signing my life away on a recruitment form. When the hell did that happen? Did that really, did that really occur? On the screen, the woman, the Admiral, continues her speech. It was once widely understood that joining the military included a pledge to risk one's life if necessary. We understand that in this age of immortality, this request has taken on a far greater weight. Even many who believe they are prepared end up fleeing in terror when the crucial moment arrives. That's why we've implemented the Phoenix Project. Training simulations have a long history in the armed forces, so it was only natural to apply them to this unique problem. We put you through this simulated life and this death with the hopes that when the time comes for you to face stare de- when the time comes for you to stare death in the face, you will say, "I've done this before. I can do it again." Something is being pushed into my hands, and I take it absently. I stare in disbelief for a moment, certain that I've never seen one before, until I remember its name. The Averto Model 33 DEW, Directed Energy Weapon. Instinctively, I feel the lever just above the trigger and make sure the safety is off. The Feroxy have just landed on Phobos and are beginning to overtake Basis off. If they succeed, their location in Mars orbit will enable them to strike Olympus City. Millions will be annihilated in the blink of an eye. Olympus City. Martian capital, family lives on outskirts. The memories keep flowing like water into a long dry riverbed at the start of a rainy season. A new set of doors slides open underneath the screen. Outside, I can see two ships with ramps lowered. I know they're waiting for us to board. Your time to fight has come, soldiers. I speak on behalf of all humanity when I say, thank you for your sacrifice. With a flicker, the screen shuts off. Though I now remember my life as James Hughes, citizen of Olympus City, lieutenant in the United Defense Force, I also remember my other life, the one that came to an end alone in the dark hospital room. And though I know it never happened, I think of it anyway, of the peace and satisfaction I felt towards the seven decades lived in the fraction of a second in an electrochemical delusion. How much more content I can be, then, with the last seven centuries I've been gifted in this remarkable solar system, here in the sun's life zone, in this age of near immortality. Part of me wants to turn and run as the line moves forward, marching this time instead of shuffling towards the transport and towards my death. But the stronger part of me puts one foot in front of the other and marches on. The end.
0: Woohoo Jeff Henry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, what an appropriate piece to choose to do on a Philip K. Dick episode. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> uh,
2: most of myself is sort of like that.
0: <laughs> I, d- I did have that. Well, it, it... a mildly dystopian creature, you say? <laughs> yes, strange. But it also—I st- love <laughs> that idea of a mildly dystopia. <laughs> <laughs> if this is this a dystopia? Well, a mild one.
2: It's, it's not great at all, it's but it's not too bad. bad Isn't that it, it kind of me. what we live in right now? <laughs> yeah. No, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, it's pretty much, pretty much the present. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say that. Uh, so I'd say one of the
0: big themes for Philip K. Dick stuff is the idea that the brain is a is something that's programmable. And I'd say that's a big thing for
2: you, too, from the writing I've seen you. Right. Dude. The... And <laughs> the brain is programmable, and then from the aspect of the program running on it, you know, yeah. you and I, the yeah. program's running on that machine, we can't tell what's programmed and right, what's real. Right, well, right.
0: Why wouldn't the brain be programmable?
2: Well, it, I, I mean,
0: obviously yeah, we, it is. We're, I think we just have discomfort with that idea because we want to... Because the brain is the seat of consciousness and identity, and we want to believe. believe Yeah, well, we want to believe it's something, you know, pure and inviolable, and you know, that's such a problem. Yeah, in in this society, when we believe that we can't, we can't be corrupted. Yeah, and then when we're corrupted, we don't red flags don't shoot up in our heads because oh, we can't be. Therefore, I'm not. I'm if my I'm own not, person. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not
2: influenced <laughs> by the media. Therefore the this, yeah, <laughs> this
0: Coca-Cola commercial is not manipulating me. I'm my own person. I, I can like choose.
2: Coca-Cola.
0: <laughs> I made the independent choice. Coca-Cola. I,
1: I walked into the supermarket and I looked at all the different kind of pops and I said, Coke is what I want because I like Coca-Cola. Intrinsically,
2: my soul <laughs> yeah, craves
0: Coca-Cola.
2: I, I well, my but, but, soul but, but, craves
0: Coca-Cola and my soul craves... Roy Moore. <laughs> oh god. But, but <laughs> then
2: you should probably get your soul destroyed. But that's ASAP.
0: but that's that's the candy choosy thing, right? Is it's the the whole a way horror. To bring it of, around. <laughs> I, but it's it's the whole horror of choice thing, of like well if it's a programmable machine, I mean, you can program it. You can throw uh, you can mix and match and throw a bunch of different chemicals at it and try to change the way it works. And the but also giving yourself that freedom is sort of terrifying. <laughs> Right. Too. like, because you're not necessarily going to make great decisions when the tool you are using to make decisions is the thing that you're experimenting <laughs> on. If right.
1: you like, change the way it works, that doesn't mean you know, you've had an opportunity to read the new user manual.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Before you dive right in and
0: change your whole reality. Well, um, not to totally sink this conversation, but, oh, please, I'm curious, what is everybody's opinion about free will?
2: <laughs> ah, that's a good question. As someone who studied philosophy in college, I have lots of opinions on these sorts of things, and took me a long time to decide, but I think I believe in free will. Pam?
1: I'm an atheist,
0: so yes, I believe
2: in free will. <laughs> Agree on both counts. <laughs>
0: I I, mean, I I I uh, I believe in a degree of determinism, but I think our ignorance is so profound that it is functionally free will. Hmm. Can you say that one more time? I've had a can lot. You to
1: can you s- use more words? You totally <laughs> lost
0: me halfway through that.
2: Just say it one more time, a little slower. That's
1: a, that's a big glass of whiskey.
0: <laughs> no, this is ginger ale.
2: Oh, well. So what you're getting is what you're getting at that. Everything is deterministic, but from our limited monkey brains, it seems like we have free will. Yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) So you you don't believe in free will, but you think free will feels the most right. I I make choices, but those choices are the product of genetics and environment and things I did not have control over. So So I I am freely making those choices because... I don't have the clockmaker's perspective on the whole thing. All I have is the information that I can immediately access in front of me. You are freely
1: making those choices, but those choices were technically made by the choices that preceded it.
2: (laughs) And those choices were made by the choices that preceded them, etc. Something like that? (laughs) So
0: wait, you, 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 You believe in free will, Tim. You're an atheist, and you're a Christian, and you do not believe in free will, essentially. I thought it would be the opposite. That's so baffling. In, why would I
1: not believe in free will? Why, do you not believe in free no.
0: will? No! Absolutely no.
2: No, I don't. But here's the, here's the thing, though. Is and the, I'm an
0: atheist as well. You can say that, like, yes, you know,
2: yes, the thing that came before me caused me to make the decision, and the thing before that and the thing before that, but the th- my problem with that is that assumes a distinction between you and the rest of the universe. Like, you know, that's like, that's like oh, I have this soul, but it's being pushed around by everything outside of it. And I say, no. We're just part of the machinery of the universe that all moves in tandem, you know. From the very thir- first moment of everything, everything was already in motion. We're- Have you
0: studied Alan Watts? Yes, I like <laughs> Alan Watts. <laughs> I can tell.
2: I, I do like Alan Watts. But, but, yeah, I'm just saying that I don't believe there's a distinction between us and the universe at large, and that's why I don't believe in it. Well, that's yeah, why I do I, believe in well, it. Well,
0: no, but I agree, I agree with exactly what you're saying. But, in that case, the idea of free will is neither...
2: Yes or no. It's, I suppose that's it's true. A,
0: it's an abstract concept. Yes,
2: I agree with what you're saying, but from my perspective it seems like I have it. <laughs> Therefore,
0: Oh yeah, that's there's the no case. way it's <laughs> impossible to act as if you it's impossible to act as if you don't have free will. Is that right? Does that make sense?
2: I mean it's, unless yeah.
0: you're unless you're Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> but that's <Nerd>. the word whole... <laughs> I'm saying that that is (laughs) but that is the whole Watchmen thing. Is a guy suddenly achieves for the record.
1: Nobody here is blue. Nobody (laughs) here is naked. Nobody here is Doctor
0: Manhattan. Uh, two of those those three statements are true. You can't see what I'm wearing under this table. (laughs) 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 I'm not wearing any pants. News at (laughs) eleven. But but I'm saying that 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 is what that story is. That's a guy who suddenly achieves this kind of total knowledge, or at least a knowledge vastly beyond our own of past present future of uh of these the of humanity as this kind of evolving organism mm-hmm. of uh and how uh you know the question of whether or not dr manhattan has free will is one of the central questions of watchmen is it possible to have that deep level of reality and still be able to yeah. choose freely when you Know the ultimate outcome of every possible decision. Like the thing about because then that you'd be a god. Yeah, but that's why I'm like the like the atheist thing. Like that's why I'm surprised because I feel like the the to believe in free will is to believe in some magical thing in the universe. Because if you, what? If you yeah, no, I disagree completely. no, because if you believe in free will, you believe that there's something in you, some sort of magical soul or something that can act independently of all of the influences acting on it all so, the time. Okay,
1: we define free will entirely differently then, all right? <laughs> yeah. because, because yes, every, cho- every choice we make is influenced by every other choice that we have made and every choice that somebody else has made, mm-hmm. but your assertion is that it does not equal free will. My assertion is it absolutely does. Every time you make a choice, it may be informed by the choices that preceded it, but that doesn't mean that the choice is predetermined. Why not? because you still get to make the choice you mm-hmm, still get but it's, to make the but you're, you're predetermined by saying, everything that's come you're essentially saying that that when you make a decision there is nothing that there is no possibility that you would have ever made the
0: opposite decision yes i i believe that's true except for for down at the <laughs> at the um, uh, atomic level uh, when you look at probability waves subatomic you're
2: thinking subatomic the, okay, level yeah yeah <laughs> well, because but because even there there is there is ultimate <laughs> There's, random, there's randomness. Non-determinism. Yes. It does exist However, in
0: the However, we, on a conscious level, have no control over that, so that doesn't make any difference in terms of our decisions.
2: But what you're saying with how, you know, there's no magical <coughs> thing inside of us that gives us the ability to make, free you know, decisions, I think that is why I believe in free will. It's like, we're just part of the universe at large, you know, there's, there's no difference between us and the rest of the universe, we're just machines functioning in tandem with nature but in that sense it's like the whole universe has free will
0: base. Well, but yeah, the, yeah, that's so you could yeah. So
2: <laughs> so I would say the could, whole universe has. What you're has saying food. what you're saying is
0: is that you are right now, Jeff Henry, <laughs> sitting in that chair, a part of the entire universe.
2: Yes. And that that And the universe entire was...
0: universe it you, every choice you make is the universe making that choice. Yes. And you can make an argument that that's free will. I think you can make an equal argument that it's n- the opposite of free will. Therefore, whole fucking thing, it just totally cancels itself out. Yes, and it does t- and cancel we, itself out. Let me go back what? to the idea that free will is a totally abstract concept. Like, the idea of meaning is an abstract concept that could just cancels itself out as well.
2: Well, you're right. It does cancel itself out. But... We still feel like we have free will, and therefore, since it would cancel itself otherwise, our perception, you know, overrides that. And (laughs) Because it feels like we do, if it cancels itself otherwise, we do.
0: Oh, we might as well. So we might as well believe that we do. At this point, what I'm going to say is predetermined, so I'm not even going to say (laughs) it. One of my favorite things is uh, the physicist Brian Green was being interviewed on uh, NPR or something, I remember. But he he just casually throws out at some point that there's no free will, and like and then physicists have not discovered at any point that there could possibly be free will in the universe. And he's like, well, I mean, if we discover it at some point, and I'll admit that, but as so far we found no way there could possibly be free will. And then and then there was a question and answer session, and you could tell the audience was just pissed at me. <laughs> people. Just get pissed when you say there's no free will. Somebody's like, I don't like that idea that you said there's no free will. I just It just doesn't make any sense to me. And he says, like, yeah, uh, I I know. (laughs) It sounds pretty pretty bad, but, you know, that's just how it is.
1: He's a physicist. (laughs) When you go go to a physicist, you're like, I don't like the fact I can't travel faster than light. He's going to be like, I don't either, but what are you going to do
0: about it? It's exactly the Tony took. It was exactly that. He's like, yeah, you know, there's nothing in physics that says you have to be – Satisfied, with... <laughs> but see, like,
2: it's that's more of a thing about the interpretation of the results than the results themselves. To me, like, to I me feel like free will is very up to interpretation.
1: That's a definition mm. of free will, yes. That, uh, it, it you can say every choice you make is predetermined by every choice that everybody else made prior to that moment, and technically, that isn't free will. But number one, I don't know that that's true, I don't mm. know that we are incapable. <laughs> of of responding to something in more than one way because that's the implication no matter what when you reach the point where this stimulus happens your only response is x you may feel that you have the options of saying x and y but all these cogs of the universe that have, have interlocked together are going to twist you towards x no matter how much you may strongly contemplate y uh that is Fair, I suppose, to say, if that's your interpretation of how the universe works. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure that's true because I tend to think that these cogs don't fit together all that particularly well. <laughs> uh, and so if a few cogs come together uh, and they're trying to interlock and push something in one way, I'm not sure they always do that. And that that to me is the definition of free will but then within, the, for, within the
0: context of this conversation. How long have we already been talking for this segment? I mean, I mean, we're. we're I, I could, I can, I'm wait, I have, I could go, go a that
1: long I'm time
2: about this. I have th- one thing <laughs> that I want to bring up.
1: Have anything up, to do with his story? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I have one thing or that I want to bring everything. up. everything <laughs> about free will. Something that's an experiment that's frequently cited in discussions about free will is you may have heard about this. It's the it's the experiment where they have a scan of someone's brain going and they tell them to raise their arm when they feel like it, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they show, oh, you're the part of your brain that makes, you know, that moves your arm lighted up before you said that you had the conscious decision to do it. They're like, therefore it was decided in your brain before you ever made the decision to raise your arm, therefore there is no free will. But I say that's drawing a false distinction between your brain and you. Like Mm -hmm. that part of your brain lights up because that's part of you. Uh So what you're saying is, (laughs) what you're saying is there is no you. Basically, yeah, actually. Yeah, so hence the whole thing about how it's the whole universe that has free will.
0: That's the whole, that's what. That's the argument I make about no free will, is to, to believe in free will is to believe in a you. I think it's funny how we <laughs> both believe there is no you, but we think it
2: means there's different like, outcomes on free will.
0: Well I think we agree on the fact that free will as a concept is very
1: abstract and nonsensical. I think yeah, we all I would agree, agree that. that you think,
0: therefore
1: I am. All right.
0: All right, Whoa. ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> for better or worse, you have been listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. I don't know why either. Are you real? Right
2: are <laughs> any of us?
0: You are listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. If you're in the Twin Cities metro area and would like to hear some live storytelling, or even sign up to perform yourself, we present a recurring monthly open mic at Kieran's Irish Pub in downtown Minneapolis. More information about this and many other spoken word events in the area are available at wordsprout.org. And now, back to the podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the not so silent Planet, a hey, speculative, speculative podcast. Okay. My, oh, podcast. We're on a podcast <laughs> right now, sir. So there is no live audience in front of us. And I had
1: no choice but to do it that way. By enough. the
0: way, <laughs> uh, we never talk about the open mic on the podcast. Uh, there is a pre-recorded plug in between oh, sections two and three of if every If only episode. I would ever listen to this podcast. <laughs> I would <already> know that. <laughs> I listened. I, I, I listened like ten minutes a couple weeks ago, and I was be, like,
1: "I'm going to be a featured guest at the open mic that happens about
0: three months before." The- <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> so, featured. for this segment, what is this segment called? The pet, The hat Whoa. of the hat of mystery. <laughs> Oh, the laws of semiotics. Yeah, there you go. The based sorting out, hat. Based off the uh, based off the laws. It's not of... bad. We oh. should be calling this thing the sorting hat. <laughs> the <laughs> it's the sorting hat. Copy. Um, based off the laws of robotics. The things uh, Isaac other writers say that we don't agree with.
1: That's what I call it. it. it, it yeah. I
0: want to draw attention to the fact that it did I pronounce ben, it wrong? It took Ben over a year to learn who Isaac Asimov was. I pronounced <laughs> it wrong anyway. Whoa. <laughs> Listen, I was brought on of this podcast as a drunk fool originally, and I still am one. Um, anyway, we pull from a hat that was crowdsourced from audience members and listeners and Facebook and uh, guests of this podcast, and they all talk about what they think the laws of science fiction and speculative fiction should be. The hat was crowdsourced? Yes. Okay. See, I saw that joke there, and I was teetering. And and what a funny joke it was. (laughs) Ha ha, I say. Please
1: contribute to our GoFundMe. (laughs) (laughs) Pay for this hat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I I pulled the first one, and it is... No longer shall the twist ending be that the seemingly malicious supernatural entity turns out to have been benevolent all along. This goes double for those times when the seemingly benevolent non-supernatural entity turns out to be the malicious one. Hmm. No obvious yeah. twists, definitely. <laughs> Well, I no mean, longer shall the twist ending be a twist ending <laughs>
1: anyone else has ever
0: used.
1: <laughs> I'm just boiling it down to its basic.
0: <laughs> so, so I will say this is a thing that weirdly uh, bugs me a lot in fantasy, yeah. more so than I've seen the trope in sci-fi. Of the, there was that big thing of, um, oh, what was the one about uh, Grendel? was big for a while it was beowulf from the point of view of uh the monster and i just remember thinking this was the dumbest like you know because it because it wasn't like they're presenting it as some clever subversion of you know like oh there's a perspective you haven't considered and it's like that's so not how this particular kind of story Operating yeah. <laughs> so, like the hero-driven
2: so, epic, okay, it's not supposed like, to be like that. Like, <laughs> but like we're, this...
1: we're getting into a period where it's like we must consider all points of view, and we must remember mm-hmm. that uh, the good and evil are subjective, and <laughs> therefore uh, one person's evil is another person's good. And then we can make movies like Maleficent. So <laughs> Maleficent turns out to not be the crimin- the villain at all. It's actually <laughs> the king who's the who's the who's the true villain of the piece. Until we retell the story from the king's perspective, <laughs> and we discovered that everything Maleficent said
0: was actually not true. And because none of them didn't... had free will. But I that... God damn it. <laughs> what, I, what I think of in this is the ghost stories, where the, go- where the where they're, they're afraid of the ghost the whole movie, and then the ghost turns out to be the good guy. Oh, actually... the ghosts are just <laughs> warning
1: you about something. And it's actually <laughs> right. the fake psychic that's the, that's the threat. Oh. I,
0: I think of what... what Wait, if, there's, what no, lies if there's no free will, are psychics real? Uh, if psychics like real, if free will is <laughs> real? It was like it. a non <laughs> Like, my, my, my wall is blue, anyway, therefore does
2: God so exist.
0: Uh, but like the movie, What Lies Beneath, spoiler warning, if you didn't see the movie i didn't see it close your ears nobody for saw this movie <laughs> <the next 10 laughs> la, 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 la. but it's just like all it's like so many other movies uh, what, what 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 else uh, uh the movie with um god damn it i wish i could think of things <laughs> on the spot and i can't yeah, what lies beneath has the ghost the ghost is just warning the whole time and the real evil is the real person the real live person and that happens so much in movies it does it's a common uh, trope so and and let me be clear i conceptually i have no problem with the i like the idea that reality is generally less good and evil and more people with conflicting perspectives who are completely misunderstanding each other is often the case and it's worthy to see stories that reflect that uh i think it is often used in a profoundly
2: stupid way (laughs) Which like is, a Beowulf thing. You know, like, which is like about a hero, you know, on a quest or whatever. It's like the two-dimensional monster villain should yeah, yeah. not be... It's <laughs> not, the, not the hero in any way, shape, you, you or know, form. You know, the one
0: who was eating babies was probably not misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> he probably just wanted to eat babies.
1: I think we understood his, his motivation. All right, I'm, I'm pulling a <laughs> slip of paper out of the hat. It's a smaller slip of paper. I imagine this is a shorter law. It a smaller font. The names of people hold no special metaphorical significance.
2: Mm, I don't know that I can agree to that. Like, <laughs> I feel like they should sometimes.
0: L- okay, are you saying in
2: fiction or
0: in life? I didn't write this. Oh,
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like it would be pretty shitty to like you know pigeonhole someone by giving them a metaphorical name <laughs> and then ho- expecting them to live up to it their whole life. I think
0: the name, if possible, the name should have some sort of meaning. Aside from just nonsense. Right. Um, because, you know, it's literature. And, yeah. it sh- and there should be stuff for... <clears throat> there should be Easter eggs for readers to find. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be obvious. This shouldn't be like... The guy shouldn't be named Bob Angry. He's, <laughs> he's his, angry. All, his, his whole thing is that he's angry <laughs> all the time. You would
1: argue, you would argue the opposite. That the <laughs> name should... Names should have relevance to the story i think so but i just don't Agreed. think it should be
0: i don't think it should be obvious i think it should be a little more buried. so you
1: think of an author just pulls a name out of their ass that they're doing it wrong
0: uh not wrong because i do it all the time i pull <laughs> names out of my ass all the time and but you can't I, possibly do anything wrong as a writer so. yes that's what i was saying yeah, yeah. i can't do anything wrong as a writer therefore <laughs> but what i'm saying is if i had more time to work on a story i would think about Maybe I'll rename this person so the name is more relevant to the theme of the story somehow, but okay. not in an obvious way. So, do, so do people totally. think there's anything to the notion that uh, people sort of end up growing into their names? Like, if you if you name your kid Jeeves. Are you like going <laughs> yes. to be a butler? Are you making some assumption about that kid's future? Or like the, going there's an obsolete search engine kind of kind.
2: There's a do, there's a dentist nearby where I grew up named Dr. Whitey, I think it was or something like that. I'm like, I'm like, I think there's some research that suggests that like in fact there is you know correlation. I, I remember I don't know if I've this is apocryphal, before. but I remember there was that story going around
0: for a while of the the person who had named their kids Winner and Loser. And like they turned out with exactly the opposite of what you like. The kid named loser had become like a rich doctor or something, and the kid named winner had been like repeatedly <laughs> jailed. And, like, uh, again, I that's almost that's too good. That's so good a story that I'm suspicious of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know. I'm sure that one instance applies to everybody else i gotta say
2: i really but, don't believe that someone would name their kid winner and loser uh that's the that's where my suspension of disbelief i is. have to say
1: that whoever wrote that law uh i clearly do really well with that because i just pull whatever name i'm gonna give somebody out
2: of my butt No. So.
1: Yeah. The names of characters in my stories never hold anything.
2: And that's not wrong. Don't it's just I like think it can be good if they do. I wrote a-
1: I wrote a play for the fringe last year in which the names of all my characters were the names of the actors because that <laughs> because that was easier.
0: Is, isn't there any um I mean, Did they keep getting confused when someone called another name and they didn't know <laughs> They're Like, wait, that's not me. <laughs> I can't do this. There's a part there's there's a certain um aspect to I, I wonder what it'd be like <laughs> to be a famous writer because you would know that people would spend time research <clears throat> researching your writing mm. uh and if you're not a famous writer people are like fuck that <laughs> <laughs> i don't give a shit But even so isn't there a temptation for all of you to <clears throat> to put easter eggs into your writing that if you were a famous writer, people and people studied it, they'd be able to find. Or is that just? No, I do that all the time. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think I most people and me on that. the same page. Yeah. Then.
1: most people that I know that, that are like published writers will sneak like the names of their friends into yeah. into their writing and stuff like that. So that that happens.
0: And th- and that's just attention to detail. I mean, I know every short story I, write, I throw in a little clever things that could reward deeper viewing that I know the stories are never ever going to get. <laughs> but like but I mean if someone does, they'll well, but someone'll notice some clever like, yeah. <laughs> oh, they do. I, well, I uh, did I, yeah, I I do I did a play called Apple Picking and every single character, everyone, their name related to apples in some way. <laughs> well then I like that. That's clever. And I think that that I
1: think that's there are times where that it makes really good sense to do that. I think that the problem with that law is it, it like suggests that it's never a good reason to do that that yeah. what you did there was kind of an easter egg if an audience is watching the, the show and they read the character and they're like oh ha, yeah. I get it, <laughs> I get it. That's, that's clever but most for most people it doesn't matter yeah. what the names are <laughs> most and people the names, won't pay attention the names shouldn't be important it shouldn't be like if I don't understand uh, yeah. if I don't understand the relevance that this name has to what's going on in this story mm. I'm actually gonna lose out right That's
0: that's problematic. It should be icing on the cake, basically. Yeah, what I (coughs) see the Easter eggs as being is is gifts for people who like the stuff and then want to find out more. It's not necessary for the enjoyment of it the first time around, but for continuing to study it. And there's the uh, there's the Walking Dead guy. I can't the guy who writes the Walking Dead, but uh, he has uh, yeah Buzz Buzz (laughs) Aldrin. <laughs> like,
2: Buzz, Buzz, middle name
0: is Light. Buzz, Buzz Lightfoot.
1: Buzz, light Cuz it's the Christ. walking dead.
0: Oh ho. <laughs> but he does the thing where he'll have uh some characters in his cast with the same name. Because he says, you know, just realistically, if you had this bunch of random people meeting up, some of them would have the same name. And and I look at that and I'm like, yes, that's true. But I don't know if the slight verisimilitude that creates is worth the potential confusion, confusion that, that will causes result. in your audience. Like, I mean, isn't that the point of fiction? Think, is to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to not, is not like, deal with that shit. Yeah, to make it. Yeah.
1: Like. I think you make a really good point,
0: Tim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tim's final law of semiotics. Are you gonna draw one? No, no.
2: Jeff's gonna Oh man, draw. there's right. some. There's some not because there's some that are way long. <laughs> Take a to, long
0: one, come on.
2: I just don't want my processed. choice to be influenced. <laughs> Everyone has a price, even you. Oh, no, 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 no. That's literally what it says. What?
0: Everyone has a price, even you. Oh no no no!
2: <laughs> I was okay. I was doing the voice of someone I can imagine saying, "Everyone has a
0: price." Are they just you. saying, "Don't ever
1: say that," "Don't ever use that line"?
0: Yeah, I think that's what they're saying. <laughs> like, I think okay. they're saying, "Everyone has a price, even you is a shitty trope." So yeah. yeah, I'm kind of kind of like that. We're not so different, you and I. <laughs> it's so funny, many like, of these. <laughs> These things boil down to, don't use cliches. Yeah,
2: which really, you you know, I think cliches can be used satirically <laughs> and really no other way. Like, in a self-aware, tongue-in-cheek sort
0: of way. In a very limited fashion.
2: Yes, in a limited fashion. Sometimes they can be funny. I, I,
0: I agree with that to a degree, and it strikes me, reflecting on that, that we're not so different.
2: <laughs> me and you. You my <laughs> God, <laughs> me and me. damn you. This episode is falling into cliches. <laughs> One out
1: of five. Oh God! <laughs> but here's here's the problem with some cliches, and as a writer, it's the, it's the pitfall. Uh, everyone at, does have a price, yeah. right? Uh, know, most most well, of yeah. us. I, there are certain things, perhaps, that we don't have a. But 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 as a as a professional writer, if somebody walked into your room and said, "I would like you to," I would like to pay you five thousand dollars to write this thing that you have no interest in writing. You'd be like. Uh, all right, $5,000, hooray! Yeah,
0: but there's still, yeah, okay, so to take that to the next logical step if someone to walk into your room and say, I'll offer you $5,000 to write uh, a comedy in support of the Klan. <laughs> or... Sure, they're, they're obviously, there but are but, lines but, here. But, like, but what if they said, I'll offer you a million dollars to
2: write an article in support of the Klan? Or a billion dollars, which you what could if, then donate yeah. to like an anti-racism you could foundation. Use all
0: that to build, you could use that to build robots that would destroy <laughs> clan members. And if my answer is, is
1: and, and, and you say, all right, now, when you say I have to write an article in support of the clan." Is that the And only it has re-
0: to be fucking effective. Yeah. To, <laughs> you have to use your you skills. You, you can't, can't just be like, then, yeah, then, the then, clan or whatever. Then, then I'm like, is that the only
1: requirement? Because then I'd start off by saying... I was paid a million dollars <laughs> full to disclosure write in articles in support of the Klan. Here it is. That would have one hell
0: of an impact.
2: <laughs> no, these funds are being used to build robots that will destroy the clan.
0: Yes. And you have to write an article. It doesn't say that. It actually you have to sound like somebody who really supports the Klan, and you're really effective in your argument. <laughs>
1: these, these are the ridiculous <laughs> That everyone has a price what if is. At what point do you abandon? In some of your principles because you just need a fucking paycheck. <laughs> Which <And okay. laughs> I
0: do feel everybody does have a point, but that doesn't mean like that, that you need to say that in the story. <laughs> it <doesn't> mean, you, <laughs> you, need you need to say even, it in
2: that way. Yes. You, know, you can know, have someone I'm, awkward saying, awkward
1: I'm saying though that, that line <laughs> is cliche, but that motivation <laughs> is yeah. not. And the question is how you write it. Yeah. Not whether or not it is an effective trope to use within a
0: story. So, so we should ridicule... The way it's articulated, not the underlying
2: sentiment. Someone being okay. offered a bribe, sure. Mean, that happens all the time in real life, and you should put that in your story. Someone saying everyone has a price, even you. No. Everyone has a price. No, no one says oh that, that in real life.
0: Even you.
2: <laughs> Puff cigar. And now,
0: please write this KKK essay. <laughs> <laughs> ha ha ha. ha. <laughs>
1: Shall I light this check on fire with my cigars? <laughs> or would you like to start typing?
0: <laughs> you could do such a surreal, like, misery type thing of someone being kidnapped to write, like, progressively more impolitic
2: <laughs> That could be a Kafka-esque kind of
0: like. Alright, I think you just thought of a new story I and or a I play did. idea. <laughs> like, I can easily get four whole minutes out of that, <laughs> <laughs> and thirty minutes of floss. <laughs> that's, that's what
1: Fringe Orphans is
0: for, my friends. <laughs> all right, all right. I think <laughs> what a! I, I, was <laughs> of, a <laughs> I was hoping that would sort of on a KKK. Now, hoping that would escalate. Why so is so much of our of our segments end on, <laughs> on pseudo racism? <stuff. laughs> like, I believe this has been several minutes of us mocking the KKK. <laughs> yes, I know, but it's still racist <laughs> stuff. It's you know what? It's just it's it's good to end. That's true. On the KKK getting killed by robots. I yes. I, I would like to make it entirely clear to anyone listening to this that. Uh, Ben, Jeff, and I are not supporters of the KKK, so if there has but been Tim any has ambiguity, the money. <laughs> we are supporters of Roblox. <laughs> Suddenly you're like, it's like Tomorrow Forbes is like, the new billionaire. Like
1: new billionaire KKK supporter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have been listening to the not-so-silent planet. We will probably be back at some point in, in the like future. like five years. Five
1: years. We've something, but we don't know when this episode this is going to go up. We, have, we don't have the slightest this idea. This episode is
0: going to go up in like
1: <laughs> May.
0: <laughs> as you crawl through the dystopian wreckage. I'd like to encourage <laughs> all
1: of you to come to my 2019 <laughs> fringe show. Cheese the musical.
0: We,
2: Dude, we, that was like two years ago.
0: <laughs> I want you to come to my show, Blade Runner. <laughs> where it's a mash of Blade Runner and the movie Blade.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say real quick... Wait, a... Sling Blade Runner? Has it <laughs> been done <dunked> <laughs> <whole> yet? Mm. <laughs> Can I just say real quick, a friend of mine went to see the new Blade Runner with me, and then oh, was yeah. like, yeah, I saw the original, and I, and, you know, I was wondering where all the vampires were. <laughs> I'm like, that, that was Blade. <laughs> not Blade Runner. I was I like, Is it. that what they call replicants? I gotta like... say,
1: an actual mash of Blade and Blade Runner would work
0: Kind of scary well.
2: <laughs> well, there
0: you go. I give that to you.
1: I
2: don't, I don't need
1: that. I've got other things. I have to write a musical about cheese, goddammit. <laughs> this, is,
0: this is just an audio podcast, but if we had video capability, a camera will be slowly zooming in on Tim's face. <laughs> as he can't stop his brain from working out the logistics of this uh, Blade Blade Runner. Blade Blade Runner. <laughs>
1: Blade is hunting vampires, Deckard is hunting replicants. It's all oh, and Blade's a vampire, and Deckard <laughs> might be a replicant. It's already there. <laughs> oh shit!
2: <laughs> I don't know, they show him in the new one and he hasn't and he's aged, so How did
1: that happen? It's like magic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It kind of says he might not be a replicant. No,
1: the replicant's age. The the replicant that he kills at the beginning of the movie is...
0: (laughs) The replicants can get pregnant for Christ's sake.
2: That's a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) On that. Mm -hmm. That's Ah. our show, folks! (laughs) Each story holds a thousand seeds A proverbial pomegranate Jewel
1: of possibilities, a not-so-silent planet, a not-so-silent planet, a not-so-silent planet.